Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Gradient Podcast. We interview various people who research, build, or use AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. I'm your host, Andrei Krenkov, a fourth-year PhD student at the Stanford Vision and Learning Lab. In this episode, I'm excited to be interviewing Alexander Vesov. Alexander is the founder and owner of Celero, a company building speech and NLP-enabled products and offer of open speech-to-text. Celero has recently shipped its own Russian speech-to-text engine. Previously, he worked in a then Moscow-based VC firm and Pomominalo.ru, a ticketing startup acquired by MTS. He received his BA and MA in economics in Moscow State University for international relations. And you can follow his channel uh, in Telegram at snakers41. He also wrote the gradient articles towards an ImageNet moment for speech-to-text and speech-to-text practitioners' criticisms of industry and academia, which I found really interesting. So that intro out of the way, thanks for making the time for this, Alexander. Pleasure is mine. All right, well, uh, let's get going. So uh, one question I'd like to open up with, uh, with just about everyone, and I think also in your case, it seems like it'd be interesting, is how did you get to be involved with AI? It seems like you started in economics, so it's interesting how you got here. Well, basically, whatever we do, we do not label as AI. Uh, we usually, like in Russia, we just joke that AI doesn't exist. Basically, we label ourselves as machine learning practitioners. So, you know, there is a joke that AI exists in PowerPoint presentations, but machine learning like is built by engineers or something like this. But regarding your question, uh, my background, as you noticed, is in economics and finance. And uh, I actually have been working in VC private equity for several years in Moscow. And then the VC firm that I worked for migrated to Europe after certain events. So after that, I worked in the internet, like in, I was more or less at first a financial controller and then a product manager in online, in an online ticketing company, like Ticketmaster, but small startup got acquired, etc. So when actually it got acquired, I had a small existential crisis and I didn't know what to do because, uh, I don't know, just working in another internet company, it was interesting, but I couldn't really find any interested companies uh, because the market is quite small in Russia or you have to work for Russian corporations, which are not really great. So I, at that point, it was 2016, 2017, I learned about machine learning. I learned that actually coding in Python is not really difficult. So I decided to take up some courses to educate myself how to code in Python. And there, I used to participate in a lot of competitions, but I didn't really think that uh, they have any practical or scientific merit, but I just participate in them just to get experience because uh, even though you can criticize Kaggle and the competition community for ages, 
the tasks that they have, they're usually a watered down version of real production tasks. So if you view them not in the light of like uh, really competing, stacking 1000 models, and I'm not joking, some people stack thousands of models, even deep learning models. Uh, but if you view them in the light of actually gaining experience and seeing, seeing what the problems the people make when judging the competitions, uh, you can quite quickly learn about the most important machine learning fields, at least in general. Uh, it is quite an active investment, so it is quite, I wouldn't say it's difficult, but it, it requires a lot of like, patience and a lot of, uh, you have to have the state of mind because uh, the atmosphere there is quite toxic. Uh, I would say that, you know, that there are memes about chats and it, it, like bro culture and like there is a Russian community uh, that actually developed around these competitions and it's like this. Uh, oh, interesting. I mean, not in, in a really bad way because all of these people do not really like, work in one place and haze each other, but like in a more, uh, you know, like hepatitis is called like a gentle killer. So in mm. this kind of way. Yeah, so yeah. Basically, um, uh, I participated in competitions. I learned to code for I don't know, a year, year and a half. And then I started to look for some jobs. Uh, there were some, I would say, hit and miss jobs that I took. I think that uh, after that, I worked uh, for one year in a more or less official capacity in a company called Profi.ru. Uh, that is actually <clears throat> a Russian marketplace for services. I don't know. For example, if you need carpenter, you can go there and look, and there will be people replying, just standard double marketplace. Uh, their distinguishing feature was caring for their customers, unlike the majority of players. And they did want to build uh, a machine learning department. Basically, what what they did, uh, they wanted to invest uh, a little bit in NLP to scrape more, we call it services. So you scrape a lot of data, you process it, and you build some classifiers on top of that. But then I kind of realized that probably the reason they were uh, having a machine learning department wasn't really because they really needed it in their work. It was like for some, we have machine learning. Yeah, which I guess is not common for many companies just to do it because, you know, it seems fancy and cool. Well, there are tasks that need to be automated. But I realized that probably uh, the problem was that this company is viewed as one of the best companies in terms of uh, its um, like HR culture or it's just culture in general on this local market. And when I realized that actually I'm working in this good company and we are doing some actual machine learning, but we are not really distinguishing ourselves. And then I met my partner uh, with whom we founded our current company. And that's it. That's like, the short story. 
I see. Yeah, that, that's quite an interesting kind of way to get into machine learning, basically self-educating in, in programming and kind of making this shift. Uh, not something I've seen before. So that's quite cool. So this is the reason why the majority of my opinions are quite down to earth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not having come from academia or or having been formally educated and worked in the industry, you have a slightly different perspective, it seems. Uh, I usually view things in terms of the actual cost of the implementation, the actual cost of the support, uh, and the actual like real-life in-the-world tasks that they can reliably solve. So I'm, I wouldn't really say that I don't like machine learning, but I would say that I'm not really, I'm not the type of guy that is actually mesmerized by it. Like, you know, it's mm. uh, the new electricity. Right. You have a more practical kind of view of what these things can actually do in practice and not the sort of AI can change everything attitude. Yeah, exactly. So for example, like, a popular example is that uh, there, there, have, there have been a lot of coverage in media about self-driving cars, and uh, there was there have been a lot of investments. Uh, there have been a lot of uh, semi-shady publicity stunts by Tesla. But for example, I do not really believe that self-driving will take off right now. But I believe that in some limited capacities, for example, for trucks on highways, it will work quite well. And there have even been commercial examples. Um, I mean, like you should view machine learning as an abstraction layer on top of a certain kind of business. So if you view it correctly, then you can apply it in your business. Or there, there may be some business processes that can be automated and which uh, affects your bottom line really well. And it is not like vaporware or buzzword. You can actually help people. And I, I wouldn't say that our company has a real mission, but whatever we are building, we are building uh, the things that actually help the end users. It, it may sound a, a little bit, a little bit preposterous, but uh, we do not participate in projects that are shady. There are a lot of cold calls, spam calls, this kind of stuff. But whenever you put the interests of the end user, the person that is interacting with your system, like to the forefront, then you really understand which systems help, which systems are just for show or for pressing people, which is a different topic. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. And I think in AI, there, there is quite a bit of, you know, showmanship in addition to solving actual problems. And, and we've seen a lot of that. And I think AI researchers also take issue with a lot of a showmanship, uh, but of course, also kind of add to it themselves. But uh, yeah, getting back to, to your story. So you met with this other person and, you know, uh, after having worked in, in a few other initiatives. And I guess from that, you eventually worked on this open speech to text uh, project. So yeah, I guess, uh, how did you come to have this idea of working on speech to text in particular, and, and then later open speech to text? Basically, uh, the thing that uh, this guy, his name is also Alex, he contracted us to build a small 
automation layer that roads uh, people calling taxi service and uh, he wanted to automate the call center uh, which at that time had around 400 people and uh, the turnover was quite high and actually hiring them uh, in order to be able to serve the rush hour was a real pain in the ass. So the biggest problem is not like actually paying these people salary because salaries in Russia are not very high, but the actual problem is hiring like 50 people every month. It's really painful. And uh, there are some competition issues, like there is monopolization, there is like, you may have heard the same stories as with Uber, but in Russia, they, the same things are done by Yandex and like the market is tightening, etc. So they had to innovate to be able to survive. So they contracted us, uh, me personally at that, at that moment, to build this routing system, which actually takes calls. And it says that this car should go to this address. Uh, this sounds easy, but there are a lot of small details because people don't really speak in a really structured way. So basically we built an MVP probably in one month, but the system used Google's SDT. And at that moment, uh, so obviously with Google, it was not uh, financially sustainable because uh, even if you have to transcribe just 15 seconds of speech, uh, just answering two questions uh, where you are and where you need to go, uh, even with this scenario, it was not like profitable if you use Google. So, I mean, like on a customer lifetime or like your unit cost basis. So at that moment, I also saw that compared to NLP and computer vision, speech was like in a state of perpetual limbo. I mean that uh, speech to text and text to speech systems have existed for literally decades, but there are no, not really many reliable vendors apart from corporations. And at that moment in Russian, there were no data sets at all. Like 99% of public data sets are in English. So uh, when you, for example, Googling for image data sets, they they transcend languages because a cat is a cat in any language. But when you're looking for speech or NLP related stuff, like 99% of everything is in English. So... That's why we decided to create our data set, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I think I, I was thinking of doing a side project in uh, speech-to-text at one point or, or having to do a speech. And even in English, I was surprised to find that, you know, at least a few years ago, most of the data sets that were released were really small. And, you know, the ones that the companies actually used, you know, were locked away and, and you had no access which, yeah, it's not at all like Vision or NLP where the big data sets are kind of the ones that are available as well. Well, it has changed in English, at least. So three years ago, there was only libre speech and the rest was public. Uh, like the, the biggest uh, corpora were not, well, the rest was private. Sorry. Uh, the biggest corpora were private, for example, Switchboard and Fisher. And uh, for the last probably 12 months, uh, there have been published more public English corpora than probably 
they have ever been published. But the problem with that data is that uh, it is mostly regurgitated public data. Uh, for example, everybody is doing their take on LibriVox. I mean, there are free audiobooks, and obviously there have been many uh, publications by corporations trying to leverage it, which is great, I guess. But at the moment, all of these data sets started coming out. Of course, basically, we have processed all of this public data. It is very cool to see these movements, but basically, these are the same audiobooks rehashed ever and ever again. Uh, but I would say that in English, they have appeared some unique data sets that have people obviously sourced from the industry. But mostly it is the same play on YouTube and audiobooks, which is good, I guess. I will not, of course, say like, the other lucrative sources of data that we have used, but it is a good change of trend. And there recently have been released a data set called Giga Speech, which is also nice. Uh, basically, they wanted to recreate Libre Speech, but make it 10 times bigger and add three domains, which is nice, I guess. The, but of course, whenever any such data sets are published, it is usually done by corporations and they have a certain form of agenda around that. And they invest a lot of time in, into overfitting some models in these data sets. Uh, basically, they're much better than whatever was available before, but uh, they're ecosystem building tools. So if you want to build a generalist system, you have to still invest much more time. And this kind of creates some problems because publicly you see all of this data and uh, people claiming this speech is solved, but in reality it is not solved. And it is kind of bad, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's interesting to see uh, you had this, um, yeah, your article towards ImageNet the ImageNet moment for speech to text. And part of that was about having this public data set and public pre-trained models. So it's interesting to see that sort of starting to happen. Yeah, it is definitely starting. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, going back to um, your, your kind of inspiration being for open speech to text, which is there were no data sets, mostly and then the ones that are were, were in English. So it made, makes a lot of sense that you wanted to do it. And I guess the next question is, how did you go about building this data set? Because, I mean, you need a lot of speech, annotated speech data, which is pretty expensive to collect, I would imagine. Well, uh, for quite a long time, I think uh, leading up to version uh, 0.1, 1.0 of open speech to text, we didn't really invest any money into annotation. Uh, the reason being is that we were quite bootstrapped. We were doing it as a side project. And basically we collected all of this data by scraping and post-processing. So you do not really need to have like, uh, you cannot find uh, audios with exact, exact second to second transcriptions in the internet, but you can find a lot of audios where you have some kind of subtitles, which may not be great. Uh, you may find some audios where you have a full text transcript, 
and you, you can just uh, scrape for certain domains that have a lot of data, and you can just collect this data and use some hacks to post-process it and cut it into small chunks. So it is basically what we did. Uh, we didn't have the illusions that we need only one domain, we collected whatever possible. And I think that the version uh, 1.0 of Open Speech to Text was released probably one year ago or one and a half years ago. So uh, we basically just uh, scraped the Russian internet for whatever structured uh, audio that we could find. We did the same, obviously, for German, English, and Spanish, and French at the same time. But in English, uh, right now, there are a lot of new public datasets, which are basically refreshing the same data, but uh, it adds to diversity because the algorithms of people who are doing probably similar work, they're quite, they're a little bit different. And in machine learning, actually, it is good when you have diversity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. So you, you did a lot of scraping, which actually is how, you know, a lot of like ImageNet was scraping with some annotation. And now, of course, uh, for language models, it's all just crawling the internet. So I guess a lot of AI is driven by just the internet these days. Well, a lot of it is driven by what data is available. Yeah. And this is why very many corporations overinvest into uh, the approaches that do not require annotation by themselves. It is because uh, they have the resources and if they can invest like one million times more compute, but they do not require annotation, uh, this is why the generative methods receive so much attention and like literally hundreds of millions of dollars of compute time invested into them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so with open speech to text, uh, yeah, it came out, I guess, a little while ago, you know, over a year ago. So uh, yeah, I'm wondering, can you just sort of summarize kind of what was the size, what was the contents of it? And then, then maybe, you know, what was the outcome of releasing it? Did you see any adoption or, or what was people's reaction? Well, uh, the size was about 20,000 hours. We released labels for 10,000 hours. Uh, the reason being that we wanted to withhold some subset. Uh, I do not remember the exact reason. Uh, the data was diverse. There were audiobooks, there were like public speech, there was radio, there was YouTube, and some random stuff that we just found that doesn't fit any criteria. For example, uh, I had a very bright idea of scraping prank calls. Uh, there used to be a real culture built in Russia around pranking. <laughs> I don't know why it exists, but actually the people who did the pranking have quite, I would say, they have problems with morality. They usually called all people who are very angry, but these are phone calls and they are public. You cannot really find a large amounts of public phone calls. And when we had non-phone calls, we obviously used this. Of course, some of them are really hilarious and some of them are really disturbing, but this is real data and it is a part of open 
speech to text and some uh, some people found this recordings and they were it was quite funny actually <laughs> because you know like a prank caller calling someone and this someone is swearing in Russian yeah and, yeah there's also been things like you know inappropriate images and image net and yeah you get some weird stuff in these data sets sometimes but uh, you know these pranks have been collected into collections by people by design so we didn't collect these pranks individually. We collected them. I think they were even torrents that people shared, like with gigabytes of this stuff. So it is really disturbing <laughs> at some point. But nevertheless, I'm diverting from the main point. The impact of the data set was, uh, I think that it didn't have any financial impact for our company. Uh, at first, we received a lot of requests on licensing or using this data, but in the end we realized that in Russia nobody is willing to pay anyone for data. Like the most hilarious cases were when some corporations wrote to us and they said that our data sucks and like nobody will use it, just give everything to us for free. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it is quite obvious what I replied to this, but uh, like when we were telling them that, hey guys, we have built a system, the quality measurements, of course, are questionable, but blah, 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 but we have beaten all the systems on the market. Of course, mm -hmm. you can like, have different validation sets and you have different metrics, but at least we try to alleviate this concern by having like 10 validation data sets from different domains. And these people didn't listen. But it was quite hilarious. So in the end, I think that uh, this data set actually didn't, didn't have any financial impact, it didn't have any like, business impact, I would say, but it was like a milestone for us. And it was the first big public data set in Russian. And there were certain corporations that, um, you know, like there is this theory of co-optation that if something becomes like an element of pop, pop, pop culture, it, it exists, but it kind of loses its original meaning. So basically I have seen two releases by uh, corporations or like entities which are somehow uh, related to Russian oligarchy. So basically they try to emulate the open source they tried to release their own datasets, but uh, it was quite obvious that it was done not out of passion, but uh, somehow out of necessity. So, mm -hmm. like, there is this big public dataset, and they do not acknowledge the existence of our dataset, as always they do. They, as always, they do not. But they started to release something, and it is quite funny because uh, whatever they do kind of pales in comparison uh, with the things that are done in English, just orders of magnitude less data, orders of magnitude less effort, but they started publishing something, mm -hmm. which is probably the real impact of this data set. It is not that we have managed to really use it as a marketing vehicle, but probably now whenever any corporation tries to do something in speech, they need to check a tick box that they publish some data sets which is probably nice because you get some data for free. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, 
as you said, it, it hasn't been the case until recently, which is, you know, in vision, there's so many data sets in LP, you know, it's standard, but it is newer in, in speech and it does sound like, you know, then your motivation was that there are no data sets, especially in Russian. And, and when you released it, that kind of changed or, or started changing. So in the end, you know, even without financial success, you can you can consider open STT to have had, you know, a significant impact. Well, uh, I think I have, after Facebook released uh, their, um, uh, not MLS, but uh, their audiobook corpus, I don't know, to remember the name, uh, they released like quite a large annotated audiobook corpus. And I think I wrote the guys, I had some down-to-earth questions, like some stupid questions. I wrote the guys from the paper, and they actually said that they know about OpenSTT, but naturally they didn't refer to it in the paper, because of mm. course, course it is Russian and blah, blah. So yeah. probably I'm, I'm not sure that uh, there is a correlation between the current wave of this English data being published uh, I wouldn't really say that we were first because like there have been big public data sets before us. But I think in Russian there is a, a cause and effect. But in English, I don't know. Probably it's just like a trend. I don't know. Yeah, but uh, still as part of a trend and especially for Russian, it, it definitely seems like it had some impact. Uh, but yeah, it's interesting that... Or, or I guess disheartening, but uh, interesting that there was no kind of financial reward. So what did you decide to do after that as far as Cilantro? And, and you know, did you try to maybe do something that you could then commercialize and, and not just do data? Is that what you did? Well, basically, we collected the data to build an speech-to-text system, uh, naturally. So who built it? We at first, at first our target was actually beating Google on taxi calls because Google had the best quality on uh, taxi calls, which was our target domain at that time. Uh, then we benchmarked our system against all of the systems on all of the domains we could touch or see or whenever we had any validation data. So we saw that our system was quite competitive. Of course, we sucked at certain domains where didn't have a lot of data, for example, bank calls. So uh, after that, uh, we started investing time and money into annotation. We used people from the call center uh, of this taxi company to annotate data. So you see, uh, they used to have 400 people and like 50% of them were not really employed very much. I mean that they would come, but they would like sit 50% of time because they were needed for this rush hour and the rest of the day that they were just sitting. So we just offered these people an additional, uh, an additional salary for mutating data. And we did it in a quite smart way so that they would spend, so that they would they would be efficient, efficient in annotating this data. So, hence we started investing time and effort into annotating more data, and we started collecting more data, and giving the, like this, disheartening and sometimes toxic 
like treatment by the community. And I, I can give you just one figure. We had to have a donations button on the OpenSTT page. And this donations button has earned us 50, uh, 500 bucks in a year, uh, which is more money that I have invested into just hosting direct links, which is roughly equivalent. So, mm-hmm. of course, right now we have like links provided by Microsoft and there is this Zenodo, which actually provides free hosting and we have torrents. So basically it doesn't cost us anything to host the data set, but it's quite funny nevertheless. So we have continued to develop our speech to text. We had several clients and then we have signed a deal with the Russian systems integrator which is also a vendor of certain systems like telephony, uh, some automation layers on top of that. And we ended in a quite a multi-year deal with them where essentially they say that they will sell a certain amount of speech-to-text in several years and there are some financial arrangements and it hardly matters, but they were actually like shopping on the market and they did a beauty contest on all of the systems on the market. And they have chosen mm-hmm. us. So oh. probably we should be proud. But I wouldn't really say that uh, the special text that we have built in English had the same success. We still haven't found any major clients for other languages. And it's quite more, uh, it is much less direct. And I'm not really sure which marketing channels work in the West, but we have this project called Celera Models, where we host uh, community pre-trained models. So there are models for English, German, Spanish, and I think we wanted to add French, but the difference from very many projects which have like 100 languages that they have taken from common words is that um, we have metrics, uh, our networks actually quite fast, and we, we released the models when they were better than Google, just mm-hmm. as a yardstick. It was, well, it was intentional, so why build 100 small models which suck when we can build four models which are better than Google? I mean, Google probably is not the best, like, milestone to overcome, but it is something, I guess. It is the most popular system worldwide, anyway. Yeah, I mean, it seems pretty significant. So yeah, you, you have this, uh, I guess, open source or, or public uh, project with Solar Models that you can find on GitHub, and you basically provide these pre-trained models for, for anyone to use, is that right? Yeah, we have a community edition which basically is just a model. Uh, it is of lesser quality of what we have privately. Uh, we thought about like what is like the economic model of that, and we decided that uh, actually there is a lot of uh, time and effort you need to invest actually to make your model production ready. So uh, it only starts with the model. The model probably is like 25% uh, of the effort you have to invest. So basically we just uh, have the models there 
and it just serves as a form of, I don't know, marketing. I wouldn't really call it real open source because we do not publish the data sets, we do not publish how we train these models, but it is something. I mean, for certain genuine use cases, probably it is, uh, some people use it, I mean, genuinely. For example, there have been reports that people used our speech detector in some museums. I don't know. It is kind of funny. Like interactive <laughs> exhi exhibitions where you come that token and something appears on the screen. I mean, why not? It is not entirely commercial. So since then we have created this speech to text project. We have created our speech activity detector. It, it actually has voice activity detector, language classifier, and number detector. Uh, and also we have created uh, text-to-speech models, which are, uh, which can run on one core of CPU, and they have decent quality. Uh, the public models are not really on par with services like uh, Yandex or Google, but they are free, so, and public, which is... Mm -hmm not really the case for text-to-speech models. Yeah, exactly. I mean, for AI, especially like hobbyist projects or, or small companies or, or what have you, having free pre-trained models that you can just use uh, off the shelf, even if you don't have a data set, if you just have the weights, right? That already enables a lot of, a lot of stuff. So it's, it's pretty important. Well, I would say that we had quite a success with uh, marketing our text-to-speech models, uh, probably due to the DIY team career or uh, visually impaired community in Russia, because uh, these communities usually are underserved by corporations, by vendors, etc. And surprisingly, there are a lot of people who code what they cannot see. And actually, I was quite surprised after I have spoken, I mean, virtually with these people, I have not mm -hmm. met them in person. And I was quite surprised that actually this component of our work was popular. So right now we have built uh, text-to-speech models for five languages. And right now we're building these models for the minority languages in Russia. You know, in Russia there are like 200 peoples. Mm -hmm. And uh, most of them, they have their national languages uh, and like, obviously they're disappearing and etc. And we treat it as a form of digital preservation. I don't know. Some people want to uh, create audio books for their children, for example, in their national language. Mm -hmm. So it is, I don't know, it is quite good. So we have received a lot of like positive feedback on that. Yeah, that, those are some really interesting applications that, uh, you know, aside from just commercial products, having these maybe uh, less commercially viable, but still very, you know, positive impact uh, outcomes is very interesting to hear about. Uh, you know, I haven't seen any of these examples before, so it's quite interesting. Yeah, so yeah, that was really interesting and it's cool to hear what you're working on now and then that you have released some pre-trained models. I suppose uh, to cap things off, I'm curious to hear about 
you know, what do you think is the state of speech to text uh, right now? You know, uh, roughly speaking, you know, how much uh, of it uh, still is not working, I suppose? Uh, you know, with some things like translation, we've had a lot of progress. So um, how much work is there in, in speech to text? What are the main barriers? And yeah, kind of what do you think is needs to be done or, or the main bottlenecks right now? Well, the main bottleneck is the same as usual. It is data. And obviously, in order to build a system that can be used in production, you have to have uh, real in-domain data. You have to annotate it, invest some time and money into it. So it has not really changed. Uh, they have appeared pre-trained models by NVIDIA, by Facebook, which are not really good. Um, some of them are really quite good in the domains they're trained on. I have not really invested uh, time and effort to benchmark them on out-of-domain data, but I would assume that uh, since they're fairly overfit to one data set, that out-of-domain performance will not be great. So they, there is a difference between building one system like generalist and building a show system that works quite well on one domain, one data set, and like using 200 GPUs in the process, like NVIDIA does. But I would say that the progress is significant nevertheless. These models are not uh, academic artifacts anymore. So you can envision using them as a sort of MVP before building your own, uh, which is like a really viable MVP. It doesn't suck, I would say. They have appeared many more uh, repositories with uh, starter code, which is nice. I would also, but I wouldn't really say that all of this was designed to bridge the gap between like uh, designing the system and applying the system. The majority of these systems were published like as an ecosystem building tools. So these corporations mostly they are mostly trying to solve data. They are mostly trying to solve content creation at scale, and they are trying to solve content moderation at scale. So this is why they invest in all of this uh, speech-to-text, and probably unsupervised speech-to-text or low-resource speech-to-text, because Facebook has a lot of videos and audios uploaded, and they need to moderate or spy on people, and that's why they are doing it. But in the process, they publish these artifacts, which is really nice. The only real problem that I see with that is that I have seen very many people uh, that do not understand what effort you have to make after you have downloaded this public model and before you have like a production-ready system. And usually people believe that since there is this uh, pre-trained model, then everything should be free. And it is kind of also, I don't know, Disappointing, maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I guess there's always going to be uh, drawbacks and, and, you know, challenges, but at least, it, you know, things have been improving in terms of being able to uh, get some starter code, some starter model, that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. 
All right. So yeah, that was a really interesting overview of, of your work and also a bit on kind of the general uh, field of speech to text, uh, which maybe is overlooked a lot in, in machine learning compared to vision and LP. Um, as the last thing, uh, can you just, uh, I don't know, plug whatever you want, let the uh, listeners know where to find your open STT, your Celera models, and, and maybe where they can follow you for any other stuff. Well, uh, all of these are published on GitHub. Uh, basically, Celera models is uh, on GitHub under Celera-models. We have Celera models, we have Celera VAT, like voice activity detector. And OpenSTT is also on GitHub under OpenSTT, unsurprisingly. Uh, or you can just uh, find my username on GitHub, which is uh, snakers4, and just look through repositories, and all of them will be there. As for some other links, uh, we have a Telegram channel. I know that probably Telegram is not more not the most popular social media uh, in America, but we have a Telegram ML machine learning related channel and we usually post some machine learning related stuff there. Some, there is some unique content like I just post my experience working with applied models, working with PyTorch, working with transformer models, this kind of stuff. We also had a podcast and I'm not really sure how to link to our Telegram channel. It has a formal URL. Yeah, we can include that in the description. I suppose we'll just you know have a link to it. It is public. I mean, you can read it if you don't have an account. But I suppose uh, recently there was more interest in like uh, independent third-party messaging lately. So I don't know. Maybe people started to use it. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, uh, if anyone listening is on Telegram, you know, check out the description for that link. Uh, and if you're interested in speech to text, then as you said, uh, we'll also link the GitHub uh, links in the description, or you can just Google for Celera models and you should find it. So yeah, great. That was quite interesting for me and hopefully for the listeners. Uh, thank you again, Alexander, for being on the Green Podcast. Thank you very much. All right. And then just let's do our usual outro. Once again, this is the Gradient Podcast. Check out our associate magazine over at thegradient.pub, which is where we have our online magazine with articles and so on. If you enjoyed this interview, please support us by sharing this podcast with your friends, subscribing and reviewing us on Apple and elsewhere. We'd uh, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening and be sure to tune in to our future episodes.